Good morning, everyone. It's Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Um, every time I say the date, it seems like we're moving through time so fast. <laughs> um, but we have another edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Anthony Montero, who's going to give an introduction and start our conversation, which I'm really looking forward to today. Yeah, thank you, Emily. And you know what we're going to talk about, or what I'm going to try to talk about, is um, the revolutionary struggle for democracy and the Black prophetic tradition. Uh, I guess uh, you know uh, what I should say first is that at this stage of human civilizational development and of the crisis of the US ruling elite, the struggle for democracy takes on a revolutionary essence. Uh, which is to say that the struggle for democracy is a struggle at this time for the power of the people against the power of this oligarchic plutocracy, uh, where a very, very few people, a tiny part of society and of humanity, have almost total control over this society. Therefore, to replace this rule with the rule of the people is the revolutionary essence of democracy. Therefore, people who talk in these high-sounded phrases about socialism and do not understand that without the power of the people, which is democracy in its full meaning, socialism uh, cannot be achieved. Uh, you know, there's always this debate, and I know uh, Emily is working on uh, and researching an essay for on Trotskyism and Neo-Trotskyism. And there's certain um, things that, uh, that distinguish Trotskyism and has uh, throughout its uh, history. And that is uh, this assumption of leaping over the struggle for democracy and going directly to socialism. The struggle is for socialism. Well, first of all, the masses of working people and the masses of people don't look at it that way. They see the immediate crisis calling out for answers that address that or this crisis. And in its largest uh, understanding, it is the struggle for democracy. And we have to work further on developing what that means and explaining it to people and so on. And this is all the more urgent because as is now apparent to everyone, the ruling elite of this country are in panic mode. I don't know that I've ever seen them uh, so, uh, 
out of sorts, as it were, uh, so panicky, so uh, uh, desperate uh, as they are now. And uh, you listen to them and you read what they say uh, and um, um, you, li <laughs> you listen and read what they say. Uh, many of them have already kind of acknowledged that um, that Trump is going to win the election. And it looks that way and the polling data shows it. Um, and uh, Trump is absolutely right when he says the passions and anger are greater now than they were in 2016 or 2020. Um, and so the ruling class now understands or is coming to understand uh, that they can't rule in the old way uh, and the people are not willing to accept their rule. And that's what this election is going to be about. And I think even a conservative count would say that something like 150 million of the 330 million Americans are in almost complete and irreversible rejection of the ruling elite. We have never seen anything like this. Uh, I think it is fair to say that this is perhaps the greatest political crisis in the history of the United States. And I don't see how people can proceed in any other way except with this understanding. And the crisis is not whether a, quote, fascist movement and a fascist will take power, but whether or not the people in their name can begin the process of assuming power, i.e. creating a new democracy at this time and thus dislodging the ruling elite from power. This is going to be a difficult and long process and it will require our understanding and getting closer to an understanding of the way the broad masses of working people, in our case in particular, the black worker, the black proletariat, thinks about the world and thinks about going uh, forward. Now, along with this uh, huge political crisis is a, another crisis, and we talk about this all the time, this rising poverty and you know, I think we have to make a, a distinction between poverty in terms of people who fall below a certain income level, uh, which is poverty, of course, and structural poverty. That is to say, where individuals, families, communities are not only poor, but will never get out of poverty. There are more Americans today whose children will not only not do better than them, but will do worse than them. This is what we call structural poverty. This is the situation that African Americans have lived for almost 
20 generations. The poverty you see among black people didn't just begin with this recession or the other recession or moving to the city or not having enough education. The poverty that you see among African-Americans is intergenerational, going back to enslavement. The majority of black folks have known nothing but poverty. Poverty is our normality. Now, this form of poverty is affecting the entire working class, and in particular, large parts, in fact, the majority of white working people. Uh, and, you know, when we look at places like Kensington, and we can never stop looking at Kensington, it is not just a geography. Uh, it is more than that. It's not, in other words, it's not just a place in Philadelphia. It is a representation of and a crystallization of long-standing social economic processes, which with deindustrialization and automation has, has begun the process of the destruction of large parts of the most stable worker, working class, and the evisceration of all of their hopes of the American dream and upward mobility. That is why Kensington is so significant. Uh, in fact, as a counter narrative, to all of the propaganda about Bidenomics and the economy is doing good and un unemployment is lower than it's ever been and, and you know, we're about ready to enter la-la land and all that stuff. No. To know what is going on, you have to understand Kensington. And you have to understand that Kensington represents something qualitatively new in the social history of the United States. You know, yeah, one would have readily expected and found it normal if Kensington were 80 or 90% African-Americans. You expect it. Intergenerational poverty, lack of opportunity, despair, all of those things that affect the oppressed and the impoverished. You would expect it. We've seen it before the heroin epidemic, the crack epidemic. We saw how they engulfed large parts of the black community. But when you go to Kensington, 75 to 80% of those on the street shooting drugs, a mixture of the most potent drugs ever known, fentanyl and heroin mixed together with some horse tranquilizer, and you see and you look at them and you know they are white people from the middle, what they call the middle class, the middle income, the stable working class who, 
whose class is being destroyed and undermined. And when people don't have a belief system, for many white people, for a good number of black people, the belief system was the American dream. My children will do better than me. And those young white people had heard that, you will do better than your parents. Go to college, get a degree, you know, go to technical school. It won't be hard for you, you know? And then it all falls apart. And you do not have a belief system to replace it with. And so you see the, um, really what, what is the tragedy of the undoing of the most stable parts of the white working class. So Kensington is not just a place, it is a symbol. It is a representation of a future for the working people of this country. That's what it is. So Kensington has something to teach this entire nation. And by the way, there are no Kensingtons anywhere else in the world except in the United States. In the poorest countries, be they in Africa or Asia or South America, they might be poor, but they ain't got no Kensington. And we have to further study what that means. You know, that's why on the other side, and we talk about this all the time, economic categories are not adequate to explain what is going on. You need advanced and sophisticated sociology. You, we need to find ways to get closer to the poor, to understand better in order to explain a way out of it. So that's, and the revolution in technology, which is coming on top of the deindustrialization. Now I wanna get certain things straight. A lot of people will say, well, most of the job losses, 80% uh, uh, of them were due to automation and not to deindustrialization, i.e. sending entire industries overseas. Uh, I don't think, I don't think uh, those arguments are correct because the deindustrialization begins in the 70s. And this movement of plants and capital to the areas of cheapest labor is kind of a post-World War II phenomenon, but really uh, uh, takes off in the late 70s and 80s uh, and has continued up until the present. And we see it in Philadelphia. Uh, for example, if I could just give an example, because, you know, uh, one of the things that we've been, you know, as you all know, we've been studying this deindustrialization of Philadelphia. 
you know, take the area of Kensington for people who don't know. That was an area of manufacturing uh, industries. If you look at the homes, if you look at the, uh, uh, the streets where stores were, where people shopped and all of, all of that's gone down. But people would walk to factories where they lived, walked home, walked to their, their corner uh, supermarket. Would, there was the barber shop, the beauty parlor. All of that was a part of a manufacturing ecosystem. Communities emerge out of that. Today, you go to the same place where this vibrant working class manufacturing ecosystem existed. Today, all of those factories are shut down and you see them, all of the factories. All of the stores along Kensington Avenue, for the most part, are, are boarded up. Abandonment is everywhere. And it is populated by young, in their majority, young white people living on the street and living there because of the easy access to fentanyl and heroin living like that and and such of course now kensington as a place is more integrated more black people i see these days um, but it's still in the majority young white people and you look at them and you can see that they are not from a poor background you can just look at their phenotype their physical structure you know, especially you look at their legs, they're strong, but their bodies are battered because of drugs. You look at that area. I have, you know, taken people on tours of the garment factories uh, in this area. All are gone. And that was not because of automation. That was because they first moved to the South and then they moved outside of the country to Asia and some to uh, South America for the cheapest labor. Take the, uh, the shipbuilding uh, industry. We don't build ships here anymore. It's not because of automation. It's because shipbuilding was moved to other countries and that can be shown across Philadelphia. It can be shown across Michigan and Detroit, uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and other centers of industry. The deindustrialization of the auto and steel industry, of the garment industry, of shipbuilding, and of transportation. This occurred before the revolution of robots and AI. This revolution in technology comes on top of that already gutting out of industry. So two and a half to three generations of that have eventuated 
in Kensington, in what you see in LA, in what you see in what was some used to be called the most beautiful city in the country, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, uh, etc. And what we have seen, and this goes against government statistics and narratives, that in the last 25 years, wealth has been further concentrated and in fewer hands and poverty has uh, spread throughout the working class. Some data show that half, over half of the working class lives in or near poverty. I would say even more. Now, with a out of artificial intelligence and robotics, now you are getting the technology that will attack those who used to do mental and technical labor. The office will never be the same. More people will work from home and digitally. Uh, fewer people will work in hospitals, in universities, in the clerical and, and other areas you know, of secretarial work and administrative work. Uh, fewer people will work for city governments. Uh, and even the physical labor like trash collection uh, will be uh, uh, automated and robots uh, you know, will, will, will pick up your trash. Uh, some, uh, some studies suggest that in a decade, 50% of existing jobs will disappear. If you want to understand the anger of working people across this country, this is the foundation of it. There is no future. Our children are being consumed in fentanyl and other drugs. Culture is demeaning and sexualizing and anti-children. And this is a big thing for a lot of people this anti-child pop culture. And people can't quite figure out, well, where did this come from? And how did it get insinuated into my child's elementary school? You, you, you see what I'm coming from? I mean, these are real questions that people have and you can't dismiss them with claims that they are a settler group or that they are homophobic and transphobic and fascist. And you can't dismiss, you can't trivialize this crisis of the people in that way. The other thing, and this, you know, all of this kind of comes together is the geostrategic shift. I just got a, you know, saw that, um, that Jeremiah posted this very good article about China and its uh, expansion of its economic and political model to the uh, what they call the global south. Uh, and how in effect, 
there is literally what they could call a new Cold War. But the Cold War, you know, in the Cold War, the West tried to make the nations of Africa and Asia choose either the U.S. or the Soviet Union. Uh, and that led to the war in Korea, that led to the war in Vietnam, that led to multiple coup d'etats in Africa and Asia, and on and on and on. Uh, if you didn't choose the United States, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agencies and military would come in and overthrow you. Well, today we're looking at a new situation where a country of, and I use this language because it's popular, of the global south, i.e. China, that is not that far removed in time from the poverty that most of the countries of the global south are now experiencing. And everybody in the global south knows that China was once like we are and knows that China's economy did not grow based upon neo-colonial exploitation of African and Asian nations. So China comes already uh, having a certain um, goodwill from the other nations of the South. And people know that the Chinese experience racism and white supremacy and European occupation. They know that what the Chinese have achieved, they achieved because they struggled and fought for it. So there's a certain goodwill. This geostrategic shift, this Afro-Asiatic reconfiguration of the world is a great democratic movement, perhaps the greatest democratic movement in human history. And this is what is so positive and exciting about it. And therefore, and again, you know, talking about Cornell, a good friend, a kind person, a good person, to in the face of this continue to refer to China as a dictatorship, as an authoritarian, almost gangster regime using the language of the neocons and Joe Biden, the war language. A nation that has lifted its people out of deep poverty. That's democracy. A, a nation where 84, 85% of the people say they are satisfied with their government. This new moment, of course, has to be celebrated. When you put all of this together, the domestic crisis, the economic crisis of poverty and impoverishment of the majority, almost the entire working class, lives somewhere in poverty or close to it. This is unknown to Americans. Believe me, sure. Black people, but the entire working class. So it can't be explained as, well, black people don't want to work. Or black people are lazy. Something that blames the victim. You can't. Well, maybe you can do it. 
but it does not resonate with the majority of white working people who are themselves falling into deeper and deeper poverty with no way out. Go to rural Michigan. And those people, you know, I saw an interview of a woman, you know, white woman whose husband is a truck driver, unable to pay a, a medical expense for her child, had to go into her child's savings to get money to pay for a prescription or some medical care that her child needed. The woman broke down crying. And that's all across this country. So we are right to define what we see as a political rebellion. And this election will be an election where the ruling class will try to defuse the rebellion, to defy to divide the, um, the people who are united in their poverty and misery. And say, for example, to a black person who looks at a poor white person, and we're supposed to say, well, we're not the same because you're a settler. Your people colonized us. And so we have nothing in common. Well, for some people it might work, but I think increasingly people are seeing the commonality of misery, precarity, and suffering. Now, you know, this brings us to the question of not just the objective conditions, but the subjective reality that is human beings. This situation was created by human beings who have a certain class interest, who are ruthless in pursuing their class interests, who have brought death and despair upon the world's people and now upon their own people, the people of this country, a ruling class that irrespective of the race, color, or creed of the victims could give less than a damn and see them as people throwaways, dispensable. Uh, and then have academics and public intellectuals speak of the situation in ways that, that condemn and uh, condemn the victims. But it is a human, hum, created by humans, and it will be solved by human beings. The ruling class keeps saying, well, AI is here, robots are here, you can't do nothing about it. Uh, we might offer you uh, some scholarships to retrain yourself uh, in AI, whatever that means, uh, where you end up making less than you ever made in your life, but you're retrained. Uh, they keep saying over and over and over again, 
to the people. You can't do anything about this. Automation is here. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your income. And on and on and on. But at the back of their minds, people know there's something that can be done. And so that is a subjective side of the crisis, the people and how they think. And this is what is very important. The categories through which the masses of people understand and explain the world and how they will change it. Seldom do philosophers or theorists or commentators talk about how the masses of people think and understand the world. Not what elites say, not what uh, Kant or Hegel or Nietzsche or Sartre, any other philosopher, theorized back in their time. Sure, the various philosophical explorations of thinking and categories of thinking are very, very important. However, how all of that is filtered through the experience and minds of the masses of working people is another thing. Hence, the black prophetic tradition. First of all, let me say, you know, white leftists and liberals and uh, so-called uh, pro-black uh, political forces look upon black people as a childish, infantile people. We are dismissed. Of course, we're patronized when they need our votes. But as a people, we are dismissed. They take are geniuses to the extent that they can, especially in art and music, and appropriate it and say it is theirs and they're responsible for it. But our people, they, they don't see us as very much. And, uh, and so they would say, well, look, their class consciousness can only go so far because they're weighted down by their religious beliefs. They're always going to church. They're always following a religious leader. They're all, you know, that's what they say. And that's what they see because really they don't see us and really have no understanding of who we are. And that's part of the great problem of the left, you know, uh, they're good at sloganizing and uh, generalizing and broad phrases and phrase mongering and 
and they can talk you to death. But when it comes to understanding the people, and certainly understanding Black people, you know, one of the things I've, I've, I've been aware of a long time, that most white leftists, they see us as infantile and exotic, you know, and they basically want a Black person or two around to say, see, we got a Black person that says what we're saying, so we're not racist. You know, uh, they never think that a Black person will say, well, that Black person you got is only capitulating to your racism. You know, he sold out or she sold out, so to speak. But they don't see us. And, you know, it was never a more clearly stated than by Noam Chomsky, who, when asked about Martin Luther King, said, I mean, and I'm quoting him. He said, I can't stand to listen to him talk because all he is doing is appealing to emotions and he is not making, and he didn't say this, but what he is suggesting, that King is incapable of making reasonable or rational arguments. And so if Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, if he went to a black church, you know, he couldn't last too long in there because of the way black people conduct church, he would he would be forced to run out screaming, ah, you know, be driven crazy, so to speak. Uh, he is so turned off to black people. Or, you know, I listen again to Chris Hedges as another example, and the more I hear him talk the better I understand that he doesn't know very much about the people and certainly not about black people. Now, why is this such a problem? Such a problem because of the historic role of the black working class in the struggle for democracy. In, in a real profound sense, one could easily make the case that the civil rights or black freedom movement of the 50s and 60s was a working class movement for democracy. To deepen and broaden democracy for all working people. As an indication of that fact, hardly ever stated or acknowledged but as an indicator of that, as the civil rights movement grew, labor organizing grew. But here is the real thing, especially in the South, that area of the country that corporations ran to because it was the most anti-labor organizing part of the country. <clears throat> With the civil rights movement, a spike, a qualitative uh, change in the organizing of labor and in particular the organizing of labor in the South where there were hardly any unions to begin with. My question is why was that why is that never acknowledged? 
by all of you all who claim to be speaking for the working class. But the democratic struggle of black people led by black people was a revolutionary struggle for democracy of and for the working people of this country. RFK Jr. doesn't get it, Cornell doesn't get it. This is a very important part of the whole thing if we are to understand what is to be done today and how does the revolutionary struggle for democracy get reignited, get refocused, and how will that happen? Now, that part of the working class, which throughout the history of the United States has behaved more like a proletariat, by which I'm saying a high level of consciousness, of class consciousness, a, can, a constantly throughout its history showing its willingness to unite and build the unity of the working class and the people, always the black working people. Take Chicago where Meghna is. If you look at the history of labor in Chicago and take uh, meat, the meat packing industry, two of the great labor leaders of the modern post-World War II period come out of meatpacking, Charlie Hayes and Addie Wyatt in Chicago. The movement of Harold Washington, it was not just to elect a black man, it was a movement of the working class, the most advanced forces, grounded in the black proletariat. But black working people, black people in general, have a narrative rooted in what we call the black prophetic tradition. Is it an irony, a contradiction to class consciousness and class action? Or does it explain it in ways specific and unique? to an oppressed people who were formerly enslaved. When they say or suggest in their narratives that we are the people of the book, it, it's poetic to me. I, I don't find it at all trivial. I mean, I find it so beautiful. What they are saying, we are the people that the prophets spoke about. We are the people of prophecy that are 400 year sojourn, and, and you know, 
in, in our religious narrative, we use the word sojourn in this country. Uh, it is for a reason and there is an end goal. Uh, the black prophetic tradition is not literal, it is allegorical. An oppressed people can and do speak allegorically and poetically. That explains the great music, the great art, the great poetry, because we are so attuned and so familiar with allegorical, poetic ways of thinking. I want to come back because I want to show you, because it, that does not complete it, but I, that's so, you know, you hear it all, one day we'll all be free, that kind of singing, uh, that kind of language, um, the, um, the emphasis upon the mother, Marvin Gaye, the first words of what's going on, mother, mother. That is so rooted in us, the mother. Uh, it's, it's so important, it, it reflects the reality because you know, under slavery, we could not marry. And so you knew what your genealogy was, not through the father, but through the mother, because, because rape was legal. A woman could have children by several men, including slave owners and such. And so how was one child to know that she or he was the brother or sibling of another? It was through the mother. And and that is why, you know, feminist discourse doesn't fit black people at all. It does, it's absurd when it comes to us. And so Marvin Gaye, mother, mother. First words, why? Because of the role of the mother, what Du Bois called the African mother idea. But the idea that we are the people that prophets were talking about thousands of years ago, and we can relate our struggle and our condition to what they were talking about. And so when we talk about the children of Israel, the 12 tribes of Moses and all of that, we see it in relationship to today. When in the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad said that God came to him, another way of saying prophecy came to him, a prophecy of a future fulfillment if we did certain things. Now, for a Noam Chomsky, it's just gibberish and foolishness and so on and so forth. 
to tens of millions of proletariat, it is meaningful. It means something. It means there is a future. If we unite and stand up. <clears throat> so the black prophetic tradition is futuristic and activist. It is a prophecy of resistance. And that is where Martin Luther King and Elijah Muhammad and, and all of this comes together. It's basically the same narrative. And if you know anything, the nation of Islam, uh, a philosophy, teachings, are mainly through the King James Version of the Bible, more than even the Quran. And uh, the use of the imagery of a Christ, a christened one, a, um, an, a, an angelic one, is so very much a part of our imaginary. And so when you go to a church and, and if you don't know what you're seeing and hearing, uh, it could be very confusing. But if you know what is going on, one, that most of the people here feel that they are the people that the prophets of old were talking about. Two, that all of this suffering, which has been long and bitter, has not been in vain. And three, there is a future where we will be free. Bottom line. Uh, now, what we're talking about is the categories. You could even say metaphors through which an oppressed people explain the world. They are not doing what post-World War II existential philosophers did, which is to announce a dead end. There is no way out. Or Samuel Beckett, waiting for Godot, waiting for God. That is not the black prophetic tradition. Acting in the framework of prophecy to realize a fulfillment, which is freedom. I can tell you, black people have never abandoned the category freedom as central to their notion of the world. If, it, if we were an infantile people, we could not understand that concept. And thus, for us, freedom means democracy. Democracy means freedom, etc. These, This category, this central category, motivates resistance. Now, um, you know, Black people as a whole have a high respect for truth. 
and you hear it so much in our leaders, you know, king, truth forever on, on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, you know, uh, always citing the New Testament, um, uh, know the truth and the truth will make you free, this connecting of freedom and the truth. Uh, and these are repeated. I mean, it's like, you know, everybody, you know, you know it off the top of your head. I mean, even if you don't know the Bible, it's repeated so much and so often. Um, it's just, uh, yes. Seraphine and I, uh, this past week met to do brainstorming about the year bald. So it's always nice we get together, eat tempeh sandwiches and have ice cream and and uh, uh, bananas and strawberry. <laughs> but and so we we were talking about <laughs> the year bald when the year. So we're thinking about a, the pedagogy. And this will be a year where we have to have a a really good fine-tuned pedagogy that we can concretely um, uh, carry out and organize throughout this region. But we had to, what do we say about Baldwin, at least as a philosopher? And what we realized is how well and how brilliantly he connected what seemingly are two uh, unconnected uh, ways of thinking, the prophetic thinking and the rational thinking. The oppressed proletariat and the categories of thought appropriated though they may be by the ruling elite of the European Enlightenment. In other words, the allegorical and the rational. And the way that James Baldwin and Magna, I'm certain, James Lawson, and when he comes to Chicago, this is, I'm certain he's going to give a demonstration of it in many ways. Martin Luther King, the allegorical and the rational. What is called religion, and I put quotes, because what the Lawsons and the Kings and uh, the Baldwins do is not religion. It is, it is the allegorical. It is the poetic. It is in some ways what the Bengali poetagor recognize. That in art and poetry, deeper knowledge is possible than even in the scientific, rational, or analytical modes. That at least when it comes to the human, the allegorical 
and the poetic perhaps explains more than the rational. Um, and so it is the black proletariat and their complex ways of thinking about the world. That as Du Bois said, and Emily reminded me of this, in the last chapter of The Souls of Black Folk, nothing of beauty has been produced in this country save the sorrow songs, save the poetry of Black folk. And it is true. And I'm not saying, of course, I'm Black and I'm proud. <laughs> and I'm Black and proud. You know? <laughs> but it is, it is so true. And hence, as the American working class under these conditions spirals into greater poverty and precarity and desperation and drug addiction and, and all mental illness and everything else. The question is what for humanity is the way out. And thus, for the working class, it is not a group of elites, this or the other, telling them what to do. It is they embracing ways of thought that are organic to them. And that will begin with the black prophetic tradition. It is, for, it, is, it is accurate. Martin Luther King is the father of new America. The black prophetic, poetic, allegorical tradition is the framing of the new human being. It really is. It is, it is the way that a new people's democracy will be conceptualized, not through the rational arguments, let us say, of a John Stuart Mill or John Locke or any of that, but through poetry through prophecy, democracy as in the black prophetic tradition, as a fulfillment of the human being. And so as I think about it, and, and this is me, I know other people say other things. I mean, these days you've got a whole army of uh, a recently minted uh, Marxist, Leninist, and Trotskyists, and radicals of every sort who uh, will 
you know, say what they have to say. No problem with that. But to know the people and to know that central and dynamic part of the proletarian and of the working class, you have to understand its poetry as a way of understanding the way it sees itself, its future, and humanity, and democracy. I'll stop there. Yeah, that was really deep, Doc, because the thing that I'm really thinking about is, especially when you started talking about the Black prophetic tradition, and I don't know, there's something about, and of course, like at the end of the day, when we talk about all this, it's the question of the struggle for democracy as like the revolutionary essence um, for the future. But the reason why I'm just thinking a lot about like what you're saying about the black prophetic tradition is like, there's one thing you said that I feel like is really like blew my mind where you said the question is whether you think that the black prophetic tradition is a contradiction, is contradictory to class consciousness or whether the black prophetic tradition actually explains class consciousness. And I thought that was so deep because like, first of all, like, first of all, there's also the question of like what you were saying about how a lot of leftists or especially when we say leftists, like the whole left, but also especially white leftists, whether you can even see the civil rights movement coming out of like beginning, coming out of Montgomery, the black proletariat in the South, whether you actually see that as a working class movement, as a movement of the proletariat, which also come, which also gets at a central question, which is, do you actually see that the black working class has been, has acted the most as a proletariat, having a class consciousness? And I think those two things together are really important to understand the moment of today, because what we're really getting at is the importance of knowledge categories, like because knowledge and like that's why we're talking about the black prophetic tradition, because within the black prophetic tradition, which is the knowledge and spirit of the black proletariat, which has acted the most as any proletariat in this country and thus shows the potential of the proletariat or the people in America, like we're showing that there are certain, like there are certain knowledge categories um, and those are important because those knowledge categories are the difference between how you both understand and can explain the current situation, but then also understand and explain the future. Um, and I really also liked what you were saying, Doc, about like what you and Serafina talked about with the difference between the allegorical, like the black prophetic tradition, poetry, art versus the rational. And I think this is the central contradiction of the black prophetic tradition and then the enlightenment. The way, for example, Cornell West tries to put together two, mm. two things that don't mm. fit. And you cannot, you cannot um, appropriate the black prophetic tradition to an enlightenment. Um, and I feel like something I thought a lot about when you were talking doc about how, um, like King Martin Luther King Jr. And James Lawson, for example, 
like they for them religion is not just religion it's allegorical it's poetic and it's deeply rooted in the working class the people that like deep within that there's a deeper philosophy of democracy and freedom and it's the black prophetic tradition tells you connects the connects the fulfillment of prophecy the fulfillment of democracy to freedom like there's there's a central category of freedom that is within the daily life or the life world of especially black black people in america and thus like the proletariat that is so important and how i also thought about it was like how i also thought about it because when you were talking about how the allegorical the poetic that there's a deeper philosophy like a more important and a deeper philosophy um, in the poetry and art of the working class, but especially the black working class, that then the rational, for example, like the way I also thought about it was like, for example, the rational, the rational will explain to you, like going back to Kensington, the rational, the best of rationality, right? Like even like the humanist, the most humanistic you can get with the rational will tell you that the poor has is still the poor still is the reason for their own condition like i feel like it will still try it'll, it will still explain to you in certain categories that the poor like that the poor um that the working class like for example the white working class is the reason for fascism it will explain it like that more than it will explain to you that the ruling the ruling elite is the source of fascism or like, because I feel like within that is an explanation of how, here's a but maybe this is a better way of saying it, that I feel like the rational will focus more on, like the rational will focus more on like the poor or the working class's demise than the working class as being a source of its own freedom, if that makes sense. Then, and I feel like, but that's so different than the black prophetic tradition, which is like this belief, which like has a conceptualization of the future and the capacity of the working class. I know I'm not being the clearest, but I feel like there's, and I think that is what helps explain like what becomes disappointing, a little disappointing about Cornell West with like the enlightenment and the black prophetic tradition of like there's a difference, like there's a difference in the categories of knowledge that you find in the black prophetic tradition, which explains, for example, that the working class, the working class um, in its movement or like um, the people in their own movement are the source of beauty and the source of their own freedom. Um, and that like that the logical, the logical conclusion is freedom, like um, Whereas I feel like the rational doesn't have that. And if anything, the rational will explain to you why um, why the poor or the worker um, produces fascism or something. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but, but I found that, anyways, I found all of this very deep for today because, yeah, because I think it is like, we said this last week, but the way you see, the way you hear even Du Bois talk about what is essentially the Black prophetic tradition, the categories of knowledge, the categories of understanding yourself and the future um, that the Black proletariat is like the Black proletariat has seen it's like them like itself in the future. I feel like 
there is is basically the categories that all of the oppressed people must like deliberately understand if that makes sense for today and that becomes essential in a time like this where like where in a time like this the struggle for democracy is sharpened and takes on more than ever revolutionary potential um but i'll also stop there but i i, just, I really love like and i just really think there's something very important and deep about that point that i repeated of yours doc this thing of do you see the black prophetic tradition as actually an explanation of a class consciousness that you see concretely in the civil rights movement or do you see it as a contradiction of class consciousness mm -hmm. and i said this last week and i don't know if i can explain it fully but i really think that's also actually becoming the difference it's becoming the explanation of also why do you see even something like the trump movement like even the white people in the trump movement do you see the discontented as actually contradictory to the struggle for democracy or as like the producers like part of an emerge like the struggle for democracy i i also wanted to say that i it it was very clarifying what you said right at the beginning that you know this focus on socialism i mean you can talk yeah. about a struggle for socialism in this country and that's what the left is always focused on right even even when cornell west decided to run it was like oh this is a path to socialism in america but the important thing that for socialism to 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 for a for a program to build socialism you first have to have a program to build substantive democracy which america sadly does not have even though you know the the claim is that oh this is a liberal democracy and it's also a gatekeeper for democracies all across the world but it's not a democracy till the will of you know millions of ordinary people finds a voice in how this country they have to have a say in how, what this nation is how it is run what its foreign policy is you know what its domestic policies and so on so it's not a democracy and till you achieve conditions where you know the people's struggle takes center stage you can't really even be talking about uh you know a path to socialism in america and this is also i mean i'm i also this is this explains what you and emily were also saying about how people totally miss the point of the civil rights movement because you know it was a struggle for a new democracy in this country mm -hmm. and 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 in, in a way to include to bring together and include all of the americans to have a voice in what this nation will represent to the world's people so to speak and mm -hmm. not just for this country and i think this is why the left is so clueless about what this what that moment meant the civil rights movement and then you know by as a cor corollary they're also clueless about what this moment meant when you know mm -hmm. all these white workers are uh, basically saying that no we are not going to accept that this is our lives as american citizens anymore we are not going to accept it we will not accept that our children are being taught these things in school and we will not accept that you are basically saying our children have no future and that we just should just like give up or something um yeah i just wanted to add that mm -hmm. Yes, something else I wanted, I, I actually think this point about the democratic struggle preceding any kind of 
struggle for socialism is so important because all these forces that are struggling for socialism are actually part of the elite ruling class agenda. Um, because and, and the true democratic movements that might not speak in the way you think, they're the real um, revolutionary movements at this time in the sense of trying to fundamentally change um, the system or at least return it to um, some of its founding principles. And um, I also just I've just been thinking since we're having this event with James Lawson in a few weeks, how the nonviolent tradition fits into the black prophetic tradition and how it is really a departure from enlightenment rationality, because it kind of flips rationality on its head to say that it's not the people in power, the people who make history, who, um, you know, have the moral authority or who, I mean, that's what we're struggling for. It's actually the masses of people who live nonviolently every day. They're not obsessed with violence, using violence to control and dominate but just by virtue of life, which is for love and which is for, you know, um, you know what Lawson calls the gift of humanity. Um, that's actually the end goal of all of this. Um, and I just, I just think it's kind of an, on, and like it, it's a little bit counterintuitive coming from the perspective of enlightenment rationality, because you think in terms of power, who has power over the state as being, you know, and that's, it's a struggle for the state, but this idea that the power lies and has always lied with the masses of people. Um, and it's it's them to whom the future belongs. Just just I mean, because that's the way that God intended it. Uh, it's just it's it's a complete flip of the way that you would think about it um, in a certain kind of rationality. Um, but yeah, I've just been thinking about nonviolence and why it was it was so uh, integral to the black prophetic tradition. Um, and also, of course, the famous essay, My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, where King really gets into why nonviolence was the philosophical path that he chose. Yeah, I just wanted to add to the conversation between the rational and the allegorical, mm -hmm. because um, when we were having our conversation about Baldwin, the rational, we were like, is it rational or scientific? Is that, you know? Um, like what word to describe mm -hmm. um, what we're talking about specifically. But when I looked up rationalism, it says that rationalism is a method of thinking that is marked by being a deductive and abstract way of reasoning. Mm -hmm. In ordinary usage, rationalism is a basic sense of respect for reason or to refer to the idea that reason should play a large role in human life, in contrast, say, to mysticism, um, which is also something you were kind of getting at, Emily. But then allegorical, um, because the definition contains the word itself, another definition says that allegory is a more or less symbolic or fictional narrative that conveys a secondary meaning not or meanings not explicitly set forth in the literal narrative itself so the symbol um is what's important in the allegory and another thing i want to put on the table is when describing or talking about the uh ways to think about the black prophetic tradition how did it come about for one was a question and you know 
the slaves reading the Bible um, and, or, and talking about like the historical process of even that um, and then the struggle for freedom that uh, we studied in Black Deconstruction, um, that's on the table. Because to me, it told me or it made me think that, well, yes, the slaves were able to um, learn lessons from Isaiah, Paul, or whomever. But at the same time, um, Doc is saying that Black people think of themselves as the people of the book where the prophets had spoken of, meaning that we are whom they have, you know, uh, spoken of. But then in another side, I was like, well, that also made a way through a kind of like dialectical historical process mm -hmm. for the slaves to be able to see themselves. Like they saw themselves as a certain type of prophet. And that also is to the point about what is the perspective, what is the level of consciousness mm -hmm. to be able to see into the future? Mm -hmm. And where does that locate itself in the consciousness? Mm -hmm. Is it a belief system mm -hmm. or is it a way of like certain being, like a, the, the <coughs> basic aspect of who you are? And so like to your example, Emily, I think that the symbol or the, the idea of the symbol is important for the allegorical because um, like the best of like the enlightenment paintings is the kind of like perfect, perfect measurement of the human um, or like how to perfectly paint <coughs> what you see in front of you. But it's interesting the way in the, either the, um, the Harlem Renaissance or whatever, how black artists were using, you know, realism and use like Charles White, the symbol of the mother <coughs> means more than what is just depicted. Mm -hmm. So that's also part of the difference because wow. in the same way that like, like I don't think that anybody else besides the um, like, the, the black people would be able to paint a mother in that sense because the tradition is generally different. That doesn't mean, so like the essence, to have the essence within it, I don't think it regards, like you are dependent by being black or whatever. But the point is, is that it has to be acknowledged, it has to be seen for it to be used. Like it has to be understood for it to be used, which is what you're saying about, uh, or to me, what you're saying about Kennedy um, and Cornell. Like they have to be able to use it, see themselves as a part of it to be able to um, think of a future or the possibilities um, for this country, especially right. like you're saying, right. in the midst of the industrialization, complete wipeout of the middle class. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. another thing that I was thinking about when you talked about, uh, when you were speaking was, when China had gotten also through a period of like harsh drugs, I forget what opium, opium the opium wars and what process would a people have to go through to be get out on the other side? You know that because like you could say it went back to like a, or I mean the the thoughts I have, which is probably not right. It's just, I'm just going after things I don't really know. Be, but like the whole middle kingdom or we're supposed to, or like there's, I don't, I don't think it's just that, but I'm just saying there's a certain type of civilizational like uh, way of seeing oneself that could also help. 
the struggle to move beyond or be a country um, or oneself again. I'm trying I'm to formulate. I'm trying to. I'm trying yeah. to because it's like I'm because what you said made me think about the opium wars in relation to Kensington and the people who are gotten off. It like. I know that when Kennedy talks about reviving the middle class again, the people who are now on drugs will have to go through a process of uh, entering into society again and becoming human again. And the only way, so it's like there's a parallel because the struggle for becoming human again probably had to happen in um, or during that time, but I'm just thinking about that. This is very cool. Um, I don't know if that makes a whole bunch of sense, but I, so I was only mentioning that um, because it's on the table with uh, this whole black prophetic uh, tradition question or what it means to even think about it because we're talking about where does it come from? What um, does that mean for the, like who are for who the people are like what is the essence and consciousness of the American people and also like how to actually get out on the other side mm -hmm. considering um, the complete wipeout mm -hmm. of the like or like the degradation of the human mind yes. of the human spirit mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. yeah but well the other thing it the other thing, sorry, just quickly, the other thing yeah. I thought about was hearing you talk was, and then especially the part where we're talking about allegorical and rational, which I really think is important, um, is like the way Paul Robeson in his essay, Primitives, I forget which one, where he talked about, he's basically like humanity um, is uh, like, is feeling, is groping back towards um, something that the East has maintained like which is the feeling or I feel like Paul Robeson was getting at something similar about and that's also why Paul Robeson was like I'm going back I'm going back to spirituals to go to the future like there's something about that and and actually like going off your point Serena, I think the way I thought about it with China would be because also this is related to when Doc you were talking about how the U.S. you can you only find a Kensington in the U.S. You do not find it in other countries. No matter how poor they are, you will not have a Kensington, which needs to be studied because something like Kensington, but also the state of today is a result of a certain historical processes and also taking into account the ruling elite, like a certain contradictions, but also a ruling elite that has acted a certain way on certain assumptions and has tried to control and embed in society and human beings certain assumptions. And in China, and I remember when we were planning the China conference, like you made this point doc where you're like, in some ways, unfortunately, the US, the state of the US today is, is not that different than China, is not that different, or like the state of a lot of communities in the US mm -hmm. is not that different than China before its revolution. The level of poverty, like drug addiction, um, no control over your own governance, stuff like that. And, but what's, I feel like what you're saying, Safina, about like this thing about allegorical and being able to see yourself, 
actually, I feel like what it made me remind, what it reminded me of in some ways is actually when Mao, like, I know it's weird, a weird connection, but it did remind me of Mao, the way Mao said that I didn't understand the capacity of the Chinese people until I went to the peasantry. Mm. And the long march made me believe that Chinese people are magic. Like he said that. He was like, I believe that the Chinese people are magic. And in some ways there is something allegorical about it where it's like, I believe that, I believe, like, what is it that he has that famous essay where he's like, um, when a mountain is placed in front of you, I believe one man with a spoon can carve his way through this mountain. Like, I think the Chinese people are like, like possessed with magic and we can make great leaps. Um, yeah, so it's, a, I don't know, that's kind of what I connect it with. Wait, actually something that uh, Serafina and Emily was say were saying helped me to, address some questions actually I've had um, and specifically like the poverty that Doc was referring to um, that you see in the U.S. is though it affects a place like Kensington the most I think the spiritual impact affects beyond Kensington mm. um, like the drug addiction the loneliness the lack of purpose is not just to Kensington, but actually affects us all. Um, and in some ways, the the depth of um, the impact really is concentrated in the U.S., where despite the wars that we w wage mm -hmm. abroad, um, despite the power that the U.S. has over other countries, like this sort of um, death really is only here that you like that the people themselves here are actually the most brutally suppressed. And the reason why what Serafina actually was saying about a healing that needs to mm -hmm. occur mm -hmm. reminded me of that is because, you know, sometimes I've wondered how my life would be different if I had grown up in China. Uh, and like whether or not the same sorts of, you know, like the impacts of mental illness or uh, isolation, um, seeing violence and poverty around, like I maybe could have been a different person had I grown up in China. But the problem that exists now is that the solution is not just for me to go to China mm -hmm. because I've been shaped and impacted by American society. And the solution also lies here mm -hmm. is what I realized in the conversation that people were saying. And the solution is to look to the black prophetic tradition. And I think that helped me to even understand like the fact that, you know, most of us here are children of immigrants where you grow up in the society where you come from a different civilization, you come here, there's a set of, there's a set of problems, but we can't really return fully. Like we can learn from uh, the struggles that our ancestors have, you know, went through or, in China, Korea, India, blah, blah, blah. But there's something new and unique here. It's sort of like what Du Bois says, you know, of the slaves when they arrived on these shores. They were everything African, but something new had emerged in the historical process of struggle. Yeah. And what we're facing in American society now, you know, what I guess y'all have spoken to is something that we can only really look to the black pro yeah. prophetic tradition to yep. be able to find a way out and it's similar to because like like you said doc it's you know this drug addiction this poverty 
This is something that is the norm for Black people in this country. But somehow there's a kernel that has led the way to these historic movements, whether it's the second American revolution through Black reconstruction coming out of slavery or the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And that just clicked because recently I've been thinking a lot about this thing like, yeah, how would have been, I have been different if I had grown up in China? Uh, and obviously like for us who are Chinese American here, seeing China rise, like that's a good thing. But the thing is, it's not like it's ours in the sense of what uh, King says of a single garment of destiny. And it's a positive development, but at the same time, it's not really something that uh, is going to be the way out for the issues in this country. Um, and that's why these new categories are also so important yeah. where, you know, like freedom or yeah. the allegorical, mm -hmm. like, I don't know what, like, I don't know if that's something uniquely American and embodied through figures like Du Bois and King or specifically Baldwin too. Deep, deep. You know, I, I, uh, I also, uh, I when when I started hearing all these explanations, I had to run upstairs to get my uh, robust and speaks because y'all had the, the mind turning. Uh, and if I could uh, read something here that I think r relates strongly to what we've been talking about, the allegorical and I guess the logical uh, that explains and expands human possibility. So uh, first, he 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 uh, you know says you know there's a scientific abstract man and then the symbolic concrete man and he says uh, now the man who thinks in concrete symbols has no abstract conception of such words as good, brave, clever. They are represented in his mind by symbolic pictures. For instance, good in a concrete mind is often represented as a picture of a woman with a child. The drawing of this picture would be the way of conveying an idea of goodness to a person of the same mentality. And then relating to, uh, to scientific thinking, he says, now I'm not going to try to belittle the achievements of science. Only a fool would deny that man holds the secrets of those, holds the key position in the world. I am simply going to ask, having found the key, has the Western man, Western bourgeois man, the reason for the distinction is made later, sufficient strength left to, to turn it in the lock? Or is he going to find that in the search, he has so exhausted his vitality that he will have to call in the cooperation of his more viral inferiors, Western or Eastern, before he can open the door and enter into his heritage. For the cost of developing the mind, the kind of mind by which the discoveries of science were made has been one which now threatens the discovery of very life. And so, oh man, when, when I when I think about Hey Eddie, could you read that uh, that last sentence? It was not clear. Could you just read it one more time? Yes. For the cost of developing the kind of mind by which the discoveries of science were made has been one which now threatens the discoverer's very life. And uh you know, when, when I when I think about, you know, to me, what has made this most uh, most real is uh, thinking about people in the nation of Islam and the way they think allegorically 
and how everyone else feels like they're in crisis because there is a crisis. And yet, uh, I remember Jeremiah once said, you know, the nation of Islam thrives in crisis. They're, you know, you hang out with one of these guys, they're chill, this prophecy, and they, and they already have a way out. They're not worried about it. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that is uh, something that, uh, I guess Robin said this kind of thinking is not unique, uniquely to one people, but this power and capacity that has developed here in the United States in black Americans that has resulted from the transatlantic slave trade and the, the experience of slavery uh, holds a unique power that must be called upon in this circumstance to get us out of the crisis of America. And uh, uh, when I think, when, and when I think about how Robeson says, once again, it's not, uh, th this is a, what, a, a beautiful thing about the darker peoples of the humanity. This helps me uh, give more power to this category of the black proletariat. W once again, there's something particular about it, but it's expressive power and it's, a, uh, it's ability to think about human potential and what's possible uh, is expansive and uh, so much more powerful than let's say just the pure reasoning of the concept of the quote unquote proletariat that was developed, let's say in the Russian revolution, which is very useful not to diminish it, but this is more powerful, uh, more expressive and more necessary to think along these lines of, of what people are possible and what we can do in this time. Yeah. I just want to add, um, I think, sorry, this is, this might be a bit of a long comment, um, just cause I have a lot of thoughts with regards to what people are saying, but the first thing that actually stood out to me about this concept of the black prophetic tradition is also like the particular words of a prophetic tradition, because prophetic is a futuristic thing, but tradition is like something that refers to a past. And so like one way that you can understand it is that it's not contradictory, but it refers to something that has yet to be fulfilled, if that makes sense. But yeah, I really like thinking about, or I really like this conversation we're having because yeah, it reminds me a lot of when we were reading and discussing Black Reconstruction because the one thing that Du Bois and also Baldwin and also King all express and did in ways that I don't fully yet understand is to capture how it was that Black people were essentially able to transform Christianity and to revolutionize Christianity because, yeah, like, I feel like because I grew up in a very Christian environment and I know essentially like the immigrant, the immigrant Christian mentality very well, um, I feel like the way that many this is maybe not all people, but many Christian people who are like my family members, for instance, how they interpret, because on a broad level, religion itself functions to give people allegories, morals, lessons, stories, narrative by which to understand and to go through life, right? Like that's the general function of it. But the way that it is most commonly interpreted, I feel in the contemporary sense is that essentially like I get this from like talking with people like my cousin, for instance, that it's like you do that, but it's still just that, oh, like I interpret the world as fallen and I'm just going to like do my own thing because the world is fallen and I can't do anything about it. So that's, I feel that's the very common mentality. But what's so 
like what's so fascinating and so I don't know like crazy about this black prophetic tradition thing is that essentially what it does is black people and all of you have been already saying this but that black people were able to use the narrative of the bible to basically one to interpret reality as it was unfolding but also to see new possibilities to act in reality and specifically the example of like the general strike in black reconstruction where like yeah like du bois shows how essentially in this moment of profound crisis um of the civil war basically black people saw that through the narrative of like the israelites you know um becoming free from egypt and they also saw it like through the literal, literal narrative of the coming of the Lord, like the apocalypse, the second coming of Christ. And that that by in seeing that basically like that this is a, a way through which the people saw themselves as agents of history and not as mere victims or sub like mere objects of history. Because the other thing is, is that the predominant way in which Christianity had been practiced in America up until that point was that. Christianity was used to rationalize and justify slavery itself mm -hmm. because the whole narrative of Christianity is that like there's like lines about like slaves obey your masters like that kind of thing which goes back to the Roman world and that and all that stuff and so essentially what the slaves were able to do and I think Baldwin talked about this too is that you're basically like ripping Christianity away from this essentially like white supremacist usage of it and turning it into something completely different um and yeah, I feel like King and Baldwin also do this very, like, very well in terms of both of them use this biblical imagery to describe essentially what was happening in America, but to also envision the possibilities for, for struggle, the possibilities for change, the possibilities for renewal. And, um, and yeah, I think the, I guess the point, one of the points I'm trying to get at is that this also reminded me of past discussions we've had about what does it mean to strive for a new language amongst the people of the United States? Because part of this is like, yeah, what are what is the actual narrative through which people understand themselves, their history, their role in history, and their role in the future? Because, yeah, like part of this whole Black prophetic tradition, like seeing yourself as people of the book, it is essentially like, a common set of shared assumptions, which were counter to what the assumptions were that were being imposed by the ruling class. And also, yeah, I, I like that Serafina brought up this question of civilization too, because yeah, like ultimately what this is, like what is possible through this is like, is not civilization in part a set of shared assumptions amongst people, assumptions that allow people to relate to one another and to relate to their past and to ultimately relate to their future. Like that is a, like that is a large part of how I understand like what civilization itself is as like a set of shared assumptions. And um, and so, yeah, I feel like actually the, the article that Doc brought up of about like China and how it's reshaping the world was interesting. And I think I got a lot out of it, but also it's very limited because actually it, it mentions Tagore and basically says that China has rejected Tagore which I think is very wrong because if you only look at China through the lens of what China is offering to the global South is just purely essentially like industrialization and science. 
I think that that is one aspect of it, but it is not the complete thing. Like it's not just like you can't narrowly define it as like China has simply embraced rationality and rejected whether you call it mysticism or spirituality or all of those things because part of what makes China modern China today and the China that is striving towards the future is like essentially like a grand narrative of China as a civilization. China would not be able to do all these things of like alleviating, basically eliminating poverty if it did not have both science, but also like a concept, like not maybe not exactly the black prophetic tradition, but a concept of itself through a narrative, like an interweaving narrative that is essentially like the kind of um, the substance of what makes civilization civilization. Um, and so that was one thought that I had. And then I think another another thought that I had was basically that, yeah, on this question of like democracy and socialism and capitalism and stuff, I think, yeah, I agree with everyone that you can understand something like the civil rights movement purely through these narrow definitions of like, oh, it wasn't socialist as that being like your only criteria, right? As like whether this is like a revolutionary movement or not, because like when you free, basically when you free yourself from those kinds of dogmatic ways of thinking, you can see things that basically like things that were not, that may have seemed almost impossible in American society and American history up until that point, which is essentially that it was through the civil rights movement that the people of the United States were able to, in a new way, essentially exert a certain, to gather and to coalesce and to exert a certain kind of force to essentially determine things that or otherwise left to the ruling class to determine, such as this most vital question of war, of like the Vietnam War. How is it that the Vietnam War ended? It was both the struggle of the Vietnamese people, but it was also the people of the United States exerting a kind of force which was basically uh, unheard of in American history up until that point to basically end a war. So it was like the people of America essentially like going to, moving to another stage of democratic rule which was incomplete but that you can't understand basically like the civil rights movement and the significance of that period without understanding that this was essentially like a new the exertion of a new kind of democratic rule and um and i think another another point that i wanted to to bring up is that uh on this question of rationality i think the way that people, that commentators, whether it's on the left or on the ruling class or both, I guess, because there's very little difference, like the way that they describe someone like Trump as being like Hitler-like and being a demagogue and using like demagoguery and using passionate appeals to emotion to basically whip the masses up into a frenzy, like that was one part of Hitler. But the other part, which is left unsaid, is that what Hitler did was that he appealed ultimately to like this excessive worship of rationality, of modern science, of the regimentation of every aspect of social life, which is something that Du Bois captures really well. And I think that, yeah, like the quote that Eddie read from Robeson, like, I feel like the point is not to overall reject rationality as such, but rather to almost like transform rationality to give it a new meaning. And, um, and I feel like that's part of the reason why like Robeson is like, like rationality has brought humanity to a certain level, but what is needed to actually fulfill in some ways, the promise, even like the promises of the enlightenment is something that essentially fills rationality, like rationalism with a new meaning, which essentially like, how would you understand Du Bois for like black reconstruction, for instance, as like 
it is a work of science, but it's also a work of art. And those things aren't in contradiction to each other. They, it's like almost like Du Bois was like basically making a new kind of science, right? And so, yeah, those are, those are some, some thoughts that I had. But one of the, the questions that I had was, I think many, I feel like many leftists, I, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but many leftists who are essentially call themselves Marxist-Leninists would say socialism is democracy, right? And I would, one of my questions was, how would you actually then relate this question of capitalism, democracy, and socialism? Because I feel like the way that like I've read it in Lenin is that the achievement of socialism is the achievement of democracy. And I don't think that that is even, like that, that formulation is not necessarily wrong, I guess. But yeah, like it's a, I think it's an interesting question because I think these are questions that we have to in some ways flush out because we're insisting on essentially like a new interpretation of like what we mean by democracy, um, if that makes sense. So, uh, okay, I, I would <laughs> like to add that this conversation has clarified for me that I do think that the allegorical intellectual or philosophical tradition is far more appropriate than the rational intellectual mm -hmm. philosophical tradition for the American condition. And I want to go back to the point that Meghna made earlier, which is that if you're looking mm. for the quote unquote democratic struggle right now, using the categories that have been created by the ruling elite over the past few decades, mm. you're going to come up empty handed because actually the democratic struggle is most organically being waged right now where people are thinking in new undefined categories, mm. but more importantly, they're thinking, they're thinking organically in like out of the prophetic tradition, which if we stretch it back to the origin of America, I would classify musically as beginning with the sorrow songs and then moving into the blues, developing yeah. into jazz and then R&B and soul where, where, okay, if the, the prophetic tradition in my mind is coming out of much more organically the Hegelian, the Hegelian dialectical tradition where you're handed a contradiction to begin with. America is home of the brave, land of the free, but America is also the home of slavery. And so that's what produces something like the way that Ray Charles sings America the Beautiful. And James Baldwin also writes about this, where he right. says that if you're thinking in the terms of the American ruling elite, which is also thinking through the false construction of white American history, that, that democracy is finished, like America has been the American project has been fulfilled, it has been achieved, then you end up with the inability to think, yeah, to think dialectically, but also to think ironically or to think morally. Mm. Like Baldwin has very interesting ways of writing about it, but he says that that's what produces the sexlessness of their voices mm -hmm. or the flatness yeah. which, with which they sing. But then he says that there's an alternate reality, which is shown in the way that, yeah, for he always, like, the way that Ray Charles sings the blues. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wanna go back to this point that where is the democratic struggle organically arising right now? Mm -hmm. And it is situated in the prophetic tradition where because the categories, because like the people thinking and moving and acting out of that tradition are not as fixated on categories that have already been defined, I think there's much more this quality of searching like searching and evaluating that also that also really has this edge of irony. Like you you can't help but be ironic when you assess the American condition because you know 
you know whether it's through your loved ones or through the beauty of the art and the music that there is something great about America, but also at the same time through the poverty, the degradation, the violence, the war, you know that America has so much yet to achieve that yeah. fulfillment. Yeah. And I think that produces a very, very unique irony that for me, it's most clearly expressed through jazz. And you, if you need like a more concrete example, you can contrast American jazz with European jazz and how there's something already contented uh -huh. or something that has already been defined with European jazz, uh -huh. a certain musical structure versus American jazz, which is even now very, like at its best, very, very much still searching, searching, searching. So I think the prophetic tradition is also, like I think the sharpest thinkers right now in terms of understanding where America comes from, where it is, and then where it's going, all imbibe this quality of I'm still searching. Like I'm still searching for my place and this, this nation is still searching for a place in the world. And then to go back to the rationalist tradition where a lot of these thinkers, whether like they picked it up through Trotskyism or um, I don't know, Marx, Marxist-Leninism, like I think of it as a very Aristotelian logic, which we were talking a little bit about where you see the world, you see America as a very flat line where you saw it move from A to B to C. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not even close to enough to assessing, mm -hmm. yeah, the pos like first the truth of American history, but then also the possibilities for where America is moving. Right. Um, but yeah, this it's really this conversation that clarified that for me mm -hmm. just now. And it also explains to me why I never thought the left was very intellectually rich because it that Aristotelian logic does not meet the criteria for understanding the American condition. It just doesn't. Like how how could you ever explain, yeah, like a Charlie Parker under right. under the Arist you know, the Aristotelian method. Yeah. How did A go from B to C and then go to like a number, basically? <laughs> like, you know, it's not in their logic system. So that's all. Well, Okay, I'm sorry, Serafina. I must insert myself. <laughs> well, okay, I wanted to build on your point, Michelle, because, okay, well, two things is it's interesting because I would like to just add the point that I think King, I think King is the, the reason why King is the father of a new nation is because it's actually King who I think injected the black prophetic tradition into America, if that makes sense. Like it is him who translated mm -hmm. the black prophetic tradition into what is the fabric of all of oh, America. Yeah. And I think, and I think that is the explanation of like even movements today, That's, yeah. like the possibility of like the possibility of like the an emerging new American people. Okay because of King injecting mm. the Black Perfect tradition into all of America. And like, he did that. And I think that's what that's what you were saying, Jeremiah, with talking about the Vietnam War, for example. Like, I remember that point you brought up where, like, when you think about it, like King, it's, and I think that's his, he, it was, it's King who like explained, in some way, I think it's King who, through his speeches and everything, explained that, the revolutionary struggle of America. 
the advancement of democracy in America, the democratic struggle can be explained by the black prophetic tradition. Like that's a very important thing that happened in American history that even allows for the emergence of a fourth American revolution in this country, which is also why we say there's still, there needs to be, whether it's Trump, RFK Jr., Cornell West, whoever emerges must take into account King because of the black prophetic tradition's ability to, the black prophetic tradition's ability um, to help the people, like the people and beyond explain themselves and like what they're capable of and what the fulfillment, like, I don't know, this thing of like the fulfillment of democracy of freedom. And I don't know, I also wanted to make that point because like, yeah, and because if you, when you think about King's speech, just take King's speech of like against the Vietnam War, a time to break silence. There is this, he's translating for, the broad people, the broad masses, this thing of like colony of time, empire of eternity, right. the truth, the fierce urgency of now. Right. But like he arms people with a sense of both the fierce urgency of now and also like the your your duty to the truth. And yeah, and, and I think it's also like, I do want to bring up, because I think it is because of King that you even get something like the Rage Against the War Machine yeah, rally, yeah. going back to that place where it's the civil rights movement was, going back to this thing of unity, like unity for what? Like healing the nation from war that is inflicted abroad, but, but thus inflicted upon ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and I also think that's why Megna, what you said earlier is really deep, where Megna, you made the point about nonviolence, yeah. like the black prophetic tradition and nonviolence. And, you know, that's also a connection between Afro-America and the East. Yeah. Like, you know, Robeson's idea of the universality, there's something universal within the music and the art, the poetic of the people. Um, and like, because nonviolence is like the sword that, yeah. you know, this thing of the sword that heals. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot of, like Jeremiah was saying, new categories, yeah. new language that is, I think, very important in a time like this and it comes from isn't it and it's interesting isn't it interesting that in some ways the source of this new language new philosophy it comes from not just the black perfect tradition but like you know afro-america um and i feel like it's like the world can trace in some ways you can say like yeah no no just this thing again this point that afro-america the black perfect tradition is both tied to, is like intrinsically or inextricably tied to like a world movement, like a world, like humanity's democratic struggle. And yeah. yeah, and I guess like going off what you were saying, Michelle, like my last point is just that I think you're talking about the word searching. I actually like the word becoming better because I don't think it's just searching. I feel like it's because when I heard you talking, like I forget who said this, but I heard it originally from Doc, this thing of like that the search for truth is like an asymptote, always like mm. always approaching, never reaching, the axis but like approach always know, like infinitely yeah. approaching like an axis like you know the mark the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards truth yeah. and i think that's why i like the word becoming better because it's like the, the idea that there is such thing as a fulfillment there is such thing yeah. as the truth yeah. and there's there's a long struggle towards the fulfillment of the fulfillment of democracy like towards freedom mm. oh can I just quickly say something because I, I mm. you know, this this question, I think I completely agree with Emily that it is King who brings the black prophetic tradition to the democratic, dem democratic 
struggle in America. And I want to talk about a little bit about nonviolence because I've been thinking about it a lot. Baldwin talks about it in this essay we've been reading, uh, you know. But anyway, the way I was thinking about it is, you know, people have such a hard time understanding this, you know, the shift towards a nonviolent strategy, you know, for uh, for freedom, both here and in India. And one of the things that said is that, okay, this makes sense. This is a strategy that makes sense because, well, while a violent resistance would just mean maybe the obliteration of the people who are struggling because, you know, you have less means or whatever. And while I agree to some extent that that is true, I don't think it fully captures the essence of that struggle because I think the essence of that struggle was to bring forth a new people, you know, a complete moral transformation, a new people who were, who, you know, were ideologically predisposed to love mm. everybody as brothers and even the oppressor. And now I know that 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 is aspirational and, you know, it remains a question whether, you know, you can fully achieve that in the light of such brutal oppression and such a cruel and, um, you know, just, just, absolutely evil ruling class but even the fact that it is aspirational presupposes that there is a future mm. and that through struggle you can right. you know bring forth that future mm -hmm. where you you know where there is this complete transformation of not just the, the people who are involved in the struggle but also the people on the other side they they have that possibility of transformation also and in this way i think you know, the essence of this uh, non-violent struggle was, you know, freedom because it sets you free and it sets uh, the oppressor free in some way. And this reminds me a lot about when we studied Howard Thurman, because, you know, even the formulation of Jesus Christ as a freedom yeah, fighter yeah, 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 yeah. and the idea that you could be yeah. Jesus Christ if yeah, you yeah, were, yeah. you know, you if you were part of the struggle for freedom and democracy in this country. And, uh, you know, I also really like that, you know, he had this beautiful formulation where he says love, but, you know, it can also be translated as nonviolence or, you know, love mm -hmm. is basically like placing a crown on the head of somebody and they spend the rest of their lives trying to grow tall enough mm -hmm. to wear wow. it. So yes. it, it has this idea of a future, just sort of inbuilt in, in, in its philosophy. And I think that's where, that's how I see those two in, together you know the non-violent struggle and the black prophetic tradition because you know the black prophet like everybody was saying jeremiah and so it, it is about the future it is about what you become not what you are right now and the path mm -hmm. towards it if i may oh, wait no sir for you you're about to go in really okay well i just wanted to say that this has just been really and this has been a really really exciting conversation and all i really kind of want to do is sort of like add one more piece to this, which I feel like it's just reaffirming the notion that the Black prophetic tradition takes, I feel like the very, um, you know, is such a dynamic and uh, necessary, you know, vision for not only, you know, like it's able to remake things like, you know, American Christianity, um, like music, like this, this struggle for democracy. And I just feel like the question that I feel like that's been on my mind that I've been turning over my head I, uh, is just that is to pretty much take up a piece of like what that question I think Jeremiah alluded to earlier, which is like, what is the relationship therefore if we're able to take into account or like see through the lens of the black prophetic tradition, the relationship between capitalism, 
socialism and democracy. And I just, I, I related it back to something that Doc, you had said about um, even bringing up the American dream, what it meant for all those white people in Kensington and how there's been no replacement. And so thus they have fallen into drugs and despair. It just made me think of one other component of um, um, Black Reconstruction, which Du Bois outlines the American assumption, the notion that, that um, well, I have it pulled up here that like the um, American labor movement, the founding spirit of America to, as, as a refuge from oppression and um, freedom for individual development, uh, grew and expanded America, basing itself on the American assumption, but that it found itself hindered by slavery in the South and the degradation of labor and indirectly by the competition of slave labor and the spread of slave psychology and at first, and it just is that thing that, and then just a paragraph later, Du Bois sort of says, the true significance of slavery in the United States to the whole social development of America lay in the ultimate relation of slaves to democracy. What were to be the limits of democratic control in the United States? If all labor, black as well as white, became free, were given schools and the right to vote, what control or should be set to the power and action of these laborers? So I, I feel like I'm just thinking this through just because um, when we had talked about the, I just think that the way in which I, not only of course, white people in this time and age who have been able to believe in a certain vision of America that even goes back to say 1776. <laughs> I'm only saying that because I found myself in the Museum of American Revolution on Friday because I took a day off and found all these white people very enamored by the story from all over, even the world, but of course, visiting Philadelphia, the birthplace of America. And like the very beginning of that, when you go into such a, when you think about that, that, that moment is very enamoring, like that possibility that America meant revolution or that to be an American was to be revolutionary in a sense, to bring together such disparate peoples from all over Europe, but even say um, both free and enslaved black folk and then Native Americans <laughs> into a single struggle. But then by the end, I was left very unsatisfied because I just wanted to think more about the second and third and fourth American Revolution. So there's just something about the dynamism to which like the Black prophetic tradition can even, I feel like, offer a new sense of the American dream. That's that's basically what I'm trying to say. And I've sort of spread it out over all of what I've been rambling about. But I also just wanted to say it feels as if it's very much um, the sort of way in which we've been able to formulate almost like a peace industrial economy. I feel like the question of war and peace is very much tied into the ability to um, redefine freedom, freedom and uh, redefine society, redefine, um, you know, America free from imperialism and just focus on really, really building up, you know, through a new set of values and new people and even the new basis of like class, but also, you know, and this is where I think that question of capital and social democracy gets to be either something we just talk about together because I'm not quite sure I can fully resolve it. But I think we also have a sense in which where this can all go, which can be a high bar to which I feel like we're asked, we from our studies are asking almost like the triad of opposition, like Trump, Cornell and RFK to even consider take it, take it further, take everything you're saying and go very far with it. And, um, but you, you may not be able to do it unless you have something like the Black Prophetic Tradition, which is very much part of this essence um, that is not only very near to many of these 
but also to the American people and just that completion of that, what will that look like? So, well, I, I wanted to explore this idea that you had brought up of King reformulating the American dream or opening up the possibility for a new American dream. Mm -hmm. And also Emily's point that it was King that opened up, like, what was it? How was the way that, how did you put it? Mm. The way that injecting, yeah, injecting, yeah, injecting the black prophetic tradition oh, yeah. to people and opening up like the a creative, like a new creative relationship between America and the world as well. Um, because actually, like when after you had said that, I was thinking about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. versus the way that he writes about his grandfather who. I don't completely understand what this tradition is, but the way I think about it is kind of like the early 20th century white white American progressive tradition, for example, that FDR and the New Deal comes out of, because hmm. RFK Jr. writes in his autobiography about how philosophically he's very impacted by his grandfather. Like he begins his this autobiography called American Values. He starts it by writing like, grandpa <laughs> like that's the first chapter and he's and his grandpa is really like really really interesting american personality because he obtained a lot of wealth and power early on in, in his life which allowed him to give his family like a very comfortable life but he was very focused on like noble american values you know science progress humanity etc but the way that he thought about america was was very distinct i think to that era um, it also reminds me of, for example, like Ansel Adams, the American photographer who kind of had a similar upbringing or the way that FDR talks about America, but they would state very plainly that like America is the greatest nation on earth because like, yeah, because <laughs> we have the greatest resources, like we have the greatest industry, like we are the first democratic nation on this earth. It's very, very mm -hmm. non-ironic, like to go back to the irony thing. But then I was thinking about how that type of Kennedy could never exist again after what King, like how King has mm. formulated this revolution of values. Like mm. it's less about America being the most progressive nation yeah. so much as America must undergo a revolution of values. America mm. must be the most revolutionary nation henceforth. Mm. Mm. And I think that explains the personalities of Trump and Kennedy. And with Kennedy in particular, I, I just find him interesting because he is, I think he's basically trying to work out how to negate the tradition that he comes from, which is, it's a different type of Kennedy coming out of a different time. He yeah. still situates himself in it, but now he has, has to meet the moment and he has been altered by King. In some ways, yeah, like I'm going to leave it there, but it's just something that I want to explore. Mm. I hit the buzz now, time. It's like the um show, but um, like, the things that are buzzing in my mind is like if Paul Robeson was alive today, in a lot of ways he would be more free and in a lot of ways he would be kind of like not uh, free. He would be free in the mind because I feel like his the level of consciousness that he had um, to coming back to Eddie, you bringing up primitives, I was just kind of like reading through it and I wanted Paul Robeson to be like, well, a new human being has emerged on the American continent, which also thinks about um, or has also undergone a 
almost like even so like a revolution in rationale a revolution in science a revolution in um the way of thinking um and because he's also considering or he, he in that in that essay is kind of like um uh defending a new thought being emerged and kind of arguing against western philosophy and, and rationale when today we are explaining the new thinking right. and um uh, ideas that have emerged which is also what emily in pointing out that king laid the foundation of the new american people like its consciousness um it, what that consciousness like boards like what that consciousness is able to birth yeah. um is is what we're explaining and why but like that's also when emily you said that me and doc or doc you had said the same thing like the reason why baldwin is able to be who he is is because he had um come back to the movement yeah. and that you know so another thing that i was thinking about was throughout the week i've been listening to a lot of baldwin interviews mm -hmm. and uh we've been talking about these interviews mm -hmm. and it was interesting and one of it he was expressing to like a, it was a, it was an okay interview woman she was i don't know where how this came about i forget but i remember baldwin saying something about the um gospel singers or just like gospel singers in general, it piqued my interest. I was like, that's really interesting how it's coming up in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, like um, singers in the church have a special role. And I was like, I, I was kind of, and I heard the rest of what he had to say, but when he said that, it made me think of almost like two things at the same time, like thinking about like the role that a person plays in society. The way that one would even think of that formulation in and of itself has more of a like kind of folkish, more of like a, you know, you're you're like a from a different civilization. Like you're explaining the roles people have in a civilization and how they interact. And I was like, it's interesting because this man from Harlem in the 20th century, almost in the same time where he's speaking to this woman expresses a feeling or understanding that he has coming from the civilization that he has within him um, <laughs> to say what role does a gospel singer or whatever play and how important it is in the community or whatever but then what was interesting about it or the com or the interviews that i've been listening to people ask him or baldwin they ask baldwin like so are questions about being a writer like just and then he talks about being an artist and then he talks about being uh like baldwin but baldwin not of himself but baldwin has many writers you know all the writers actually every writer <laughs> and then he talks and, and the way that he explains or breaks down the answers to these kinds of like searching questions that either young people have that interviewers have um is kind of like a display of the um of the of the of what really not only the artists 
or Baldwin has, but what one is trying to do because of one's task. And when he's talking about like his stories, his interview, like he, they're talking about just above my head. And he was saying, yeah, like the, the characters drive me. He, or Baldwin, that's the way that he puts it. The characters drive him to certain conclusions. And yes, maybe some of the, uh, the positions or realities of the characters themselves derive from a certain place in reality of Baldwin's life. They aren't descriptive or everything that's coming out of Baldwin isn't descriptive of who Baldwin is. So it's not as though he is explaining parts of his own self or consciousness. He's explaining characters in a reality, not in a reality, but people, people. He's explaining people and also working out that becoming of whatever uh, you know situation the characters are in, whether that be like in just above my head, the father figure who is also an artist who has a kid. So there's like the safety, the safety net of having this responsibility of children that the that the character Arthur might not have. Maybe Arthur lives a more precarious life. The artist that is like always on the edge of society, the troublemaker and things like that. But it's not as though that Baldwin planned out everything that Arthur was going to be, but that the story comes to Baldwin and he is a vessel in which is um, kind of continually following it to the whatever conclusion that he finds uh, true, the, the truth of the matter. And like that whole small portion of what you said made me think about, you know, just his role or the role of like the storyteller or like a griot or whatever in society and that there is that still what we're talking about the black radical or prophetic tradition and the uh what that means to the level of consciousness um of the people you know there is what you're saying jeremiah this this callback to this um this, this certain past, this true past that people once came from, but also is this um, this struggle to become what you're actually supposed to be. Um, and another thing I want to say is like people miss this entire conversation, which makes me so annoyed. Like I don't listen to podcasts a lot. I really don't. And I try to listen to people more so now and I, because I'm trying to like stay on, on you know, figure out what people are trying to say. And like, I get tired of just hearing stuff that happens with Hunter Biden and how much weed he does or like, yeah. you know, like what, um, the, I just think that the question that we're working out with this conversation, which is why I appreciate you guys so much. I'm like, this is so fun because because it's like when we're um, talking about like the or even last week the Richard Haas the uh, whatever he said the domestic crisis yeah. is the whatever so it's a, yeah the greatest threat to our national security greatest threat to our national security and then our topic of today talking about the democratic struggle mm-hmm. it's just like you miss the important conversation when there is i don't know how you miss it i just don't know how you miss it and i just feel 
like that's a, a violation or a certain like you're saying kathy like the same way that we want kennedy and the and cornell west and trump to also go for it like the same responsibility is for the people in, on the left to actually talk to talk not only about facts or not only about nations fighting each other not only about like the fact that our country or our deep state is against the people and we're living in this time where there is no hope and but actually get to the ideological struggle like the like the um the conflicting and constant philosophical and political matters that have to be clarified for people to better understand their um, potential today. And I think that it is almost easy or almost like a cop-out just to like um, stay at a certain level of mm -hmm. understanding what CNN or um, what the uh, legislative government just proposes and try to understand that. But I also know that there's a task in that. I think it's valuable to understand um, that. But I just think that I don't want to hear people just hear them speak. Like, I don't want to hear them hear themselves speak. I just want to be able to think with somebody and figure out the possibilities more. And that's my like kind of um, like qualm with the podcast that I listen to because it's I don't want to just repeat free school, but it you know throughout my week. But I also know that I think philosophical questions are hard to debate because they become so personal. Like they become something that is almost untouchable. But that also proves to be a violation or a lack of like courage to move um, the moment. And partly so, it that reminds me of like the Nation of Islam too, like to what you're saying also Eddie, earlier, like there's a certain chill, there's a certain calmness, there's a certain yeah. steadiness that people move with. Mm -hmm. It's because mm -hmm. there is this courage that is found deeper than just seeing what the problem is out in front um whether that be the drug problem or the gang problem or the violence problem everything you know out in front is very anxiety it, it produces a lot of anxiety and even to this being lonely like people feel lonely because there is no way out there is no one to confine it um who do you talk to and so like it is actually important of the ideological struggle to actually open up conversation and talk about the truth and hearts of matters, especially in a moment when there is like, it is easier to not have a dream or it is easier to tell people that there is nothing to believe in because I think that's just pop out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just going to quickly add that um, regarding what, what Serafina is saying and 
I, I think I'm trying to flesh out more of my thoughts, but the really, I think one of the key aspects of even how you understand the role of prophecy is as an act of freedom, basically, because I think going back to like what I was trying to say before, it's like, it's like the freedom to basically project a new narrative onto society, onto history, and onto your own role in shaping history. And at the same time, like what prophecy also does is that it gives you a sense of destiny almost, like a sense of we are destined for this. And it's not in a kind of way where reality is like overdetermined, but that once you have that sense of destiny, it gives you, as Serafina is saying, like the courage to act, the confidence to act, in a time, especially in a time of crisis when everything is in flux, and then the people assert their own narrative of themselves. And the, the other thing I was thinking about is that when people were saying that a king and some, yeah, King injected the black prophetic tradition into the American people, like almost a meta way of thinking about it is that something like the civil rights movement itself lends, it gives new narratives to the American people. It's like, you can see yourself in a King, you can see yourself in a Baldwin, you can see yourself in a Du Bois, you can see yourself in the narrative itself, you can see yourself in the narrative of the struggle of the civil rights movement and like in some ways that is partially the question of this time, which is can people, can people in the Trump movement, can people who support RFK, can they see themselves through the narrative of what the civil rights movement was able to achieve? Can they see themselves in that lens through that narrative and that narrative giving them a sense of, of confidence, of possibility of like, oh, we can do this. Like we can do something which is either unexpected or which seems impossible almost. And um, and yeah, the last thing I wanted to say is that the this conversation reminds me of, I think it's Baldwin's critique of Richard Wright's novel, um, Native Son, in which he basically critiques Wright for like trying to bring in almost like a cold sociological, um, a cold sociological, like a cold sociological like framing of essentially like the conditions of black people. And I think in light of like what we've basically talked about, I don't think it's that Baldwin is like opposed to sociology as like a thing, but it's more that he was expressing a dissatisfaction with the inadequacy of like sociology as it was currently manifested. Because the thing that Baldwin brings in is like what Wright has missed is that black people are not just like a set of like sociological facts, but they are people with a tradition and of a striving and you can't have a sociology which disregards that what might seem like more of a qualitative or subjective thing, but that that is an ascent that must become an essential element of what is a new sociology. And yeah, like this thing, this question of, I feel like what we in the free school have been talking about for so long, which is like beyond all of these metrics of like measuring an economy, measuring like even an economic crisis, like the key question that we're interested in is almost like this new sociology of how do you assess the capacity of the people in a time of crisis? This is a new kind of formulation, which I think is like what Du Bois gives, but also what Baldwin is trying to move towards, even in terms of how he was critiquing like literature at the time. Um, but yeah, sorry, that was just um, 
additional thoughts I had. Yeah, I just I just really liked what Serafino was saying about, you know, we're going beyond a kind of winning an argument. You know, this is not about rational debate. Um, and the, but I mean, but it's actually about developing as a person to be able to get closer to the truth. Um, I also think it's important, this thing of, I think we talked about it earlier, but Christianity is not as a religion of the church, but as a religion of the man, Jesus, acting as he acted, being as he acted, um, and being as he did, um, you know, and that's also where developing and, and embodying his nonviolent practice. Um, and just this thing of like, before I go out in the world, I look at myself, you know, I go inwards, I transform who I am as a person. Um, I just think it's all, again, it's just really relevant to nonviolence, um, the development of the human being, of your potential, not asking structures to change for you. You know, um, in this conversation with Lawson, there was this really brilliant um, part where this woman asked him a question that was very identity politics. Um, she asked, um, I think she said, oh, Reverend Lawson, like, how do I deal with people not seeing me? Um, you know, as a person, and I just feel really undervalued, and people just don't recognize me. Um, and to the white world, this is, oh, I'm so sorry, sweetie, like, I'm going to recognize you now, and I'm going to give you space to talk. But Lawson cut her off and shut her down. He was like, I don't like this popular way of talking, because you have the gift of life. It's up to you to grasp it and make your voice heard. And he said, um, yeah, he was talking about how, um, you know, it's not about seeing myself reflected on stage. If uh, then I will transform myself into someone who will be on stage. Um, and just how like the emphasis in this new American revolution, what we need on our times is for a kind of self-transformation um, of people to change structures and not the other way around, which is also a problem of the left. Um, and I also think we had talked about this a long time ago, but what's happening in Kensington and what's happening to a lot of masses of white people who never face this kind of degradation and humiliation and neglect and just, you know, really contempt by the ruling class. But that's also a part of the transformation that's happening, you know, of people's consciousness. There is a kind of rebirth of the American people. Um, you know, the more and more people are suffering the more and more potential there is to raise something new. I just think it's really important that we're pushing back on this settler thing because there's actually a rebirth happening that's more in line with our revolutionary traditions. Um, yeah. I had some thoughts about prophecy where if you think about basically knowledge of the future, I feel like prophecy is one of the only categories or ways of actually thinking about the future the only other kind that i can think of is basically like forecasting which i guess is the more like rational or like scientific view of assessing or guessing or trying to predict the future but i feel like the thing about forecasting is that inherently like all you can do is basically like assess structures or probabilities and i think this is also related to like law and chance where i think the concept of prophecy is that a person i think basically dreams it up or has a vision like literally a person a human being has a vision of what will come in the future and then it's up to human beings 
to basically fulfill that prophecy. And I think that's related to what Jeremiah was saying about destiny, where people have to feel, I think, a sense of passion about the future to say like, this is the future basically belongs to me. Like I have predicted it, like I have seen it. And I know that that's something that I'm like striving to achieve. Whereas I feel like forecasting inevitably is about like, oh, well, like the weather pattern or like because of the data that we have right now, like we're predicting that inflation is going to be like something for the next quarter. And so, yeah, I think also like I think basically it shows the inadequacy of pure scientific rationality and as in trying to determine like the domain of the future. Um, and yeah, I also just think that the point that Doc brought up at the very beginning about how basically Baldwin as a philosopher managed to connect those two like seemingly unconnected ways of thinking of like the prophetic thinking and the rational thinking where I feel like that's also kind of what free school has been trying to do which is how can you harness yeah both law and chance like have the observations or I think the science but not lose and actually instead try to emphasize more the human element um yeah but i don't know i feel like there's a lot and there are also some comments which if it's okay i'll read now um okay todd um ryan wagner someone called the urban educator christopher romero um i'll say good morning um brother jerome says Jesse Jackson once called Minister Farrakhan a frustrated Christian preacher, lol. Um, and then Hiker Ross says, artist Beaster Gates said, we know how to use the hustle muscle, but we also need to use our imagination muscle. Um, someone called Adigo Luwum says, glad I found this. And then Todd is quoting from, I think pe stuff people are saying where it flips rationality on its head to say that it's not the mass, the people in power, I guess, who determine things, but rather the masses of people who live nonviolently every day. And Leah Betra says, to Serafina and Jeremiah's points about civilization, I remember hearing Baldwin in a conversation with Nikki Giovanni call civilization, quote, a sense of life, which is the only thing that civilizes anybody. And then Christopher Romero says, when China was brought up in the conversation, the thought that comes to my mind is how the new world is still trying to find its place in the world. And it only has really two options going forward. Um, the first option is to pretend not to inhabit the same world with other civilizations. Um, and the second is to embrace its place with the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution. Um, recognizing that only utilizing Western civilization and history um, by like Rome and like Greece and stuff like that, that will only hinder our development going forward. Just my two cents. And so I feel like that's kind of a reconciliation between like enlightenment philosophy, but then like what Eddie was talking about with Paul Robeson and the spirituality of the East. And then Jake says, hey everyone, good to see everyone. Um, it isn't categories that will save us forcing people into a box and not understanding where they're coming from kills people's spirit. It's about freeing ourselves from ideas that stop us from doing the best we can do morally, spiritually, ideologically, politically, culturally, etc. Everyone stays safe. And I think we've been talking about categories as basically a philosophical category of knowledge 
and not the sterile categories that people try to yeah, like box people into. Um, which is why I think like, yeah, I think it's important, yeah, to like distinguish philosophical categories of knowledge and especially like new emerging categories that I feel like we are trying to uncover and to say are basically, I think like the distinctive forces that matter most in this political moment. Um, and then Christopher Romero is adding from his old point. Um, also to add, I wonder if this video of the new, this idea of the new world forming into quote, new nations is just the entirety of the Americas continuing to develop without the hindrance of imperialism. We are in a way in our infancy in comparison to the old world that has more ancient history to draw upon. And then BK um, said, our indigenous ancestors effectively prophesized via the science of divination. Modern science has yet to construct hardware to validate this ancient science. Um, yeah, and then I think those, those are all of the comments for now. Uh, I just wanted to add that um, I really like this point about prophecy and destiny. Um, and then also, Nuri, when you contrasted it with forecasting, because if we're if we're mapping some of this onto law and chance, I, I think that destiny is an important concept because it gives a subjective element. It gives chance. It gives the human being the weight that like humanity deserves, because this thing about destiny versus forecasting also made me think about the quote that King would use a lot, that the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a deterministic statement, but it's saying that because of like the capacity of human beings and the, the organic desire for human beings to strive for truth and then for the world to eventually be constructed around the truth, like the, the arc of the moral universe, like ultimately it will bend toward justice, but yeah, this concept of destiny, I I find, I just, I don't know, like there's something about it that I think is really important. And some of us had seen this um, jazz performance last Friday in, um, in West Philly, and it was Bobby Zanko and the Wonderful Sound, who's an avant-garde jazz musician uh, playing out of Philadelphia. And the music that they were playing was actually all constructed around the idea of destiny. It was music from an album, like a new album that he's releasing and it's called A Change of Destiny. And I think it's specifically very much about the American condition because he's saying that something brought us to this point and there's so much tragedy and degradation that has brought us to this point, but there's nowhere to go but far into the future where we're destined mm. to go, which is mm. a place of freedom, like a place, place of love and dignity. Whoa. And I found it, yeah, I just found it so fascinating that first the album is formulated as a change of destiny, but then I think the album maybe has five songs and the song in the middle itself is called Destiny. Um, and philosophically, I know that he, we talked about this a little bit, but philosophically he's also linking the American blues to Eastern Buddhism. So mm. there is something also about the old world and the new world that I'm trying to put together in my head.
ahead. Um, you know, I know we have to get ready to go to New York. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> it's going to be a long day. Could I just say one thing? Um, just one word I would add in there is the concept of fulfillment. And the other one is a people's imaginary. Uh, and I think when we talk about civilization, and I think this is very, you know, I, this is why it's so rich to talk like this, a new people and a new civilization will arise. And that's why the United States is so much at the very core of what is going on in the world. The American people, even the poorest, most destitute, even the people in Kensington, even the homeless, are part of a great movement of humanity forward. And each, and this is, uh, Magna, this is why I so agree with uh, James Lawson. Uh, we are not victims. We are agents of a new humanity. Uh, and all of these questions that turn everything back towards the individual and away from the people. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the elitism, which uh, thinks that those who think through rational categories are superior to those who think in other ways. Thought is complex. Thought is many, it's, and many undiscoverables. We do not yet know the full potential of thought, but thought, and we will know it as the people um, uh, enter into a new stage of struggle. But to think that all we need is the rational uh, philosophers of the past and science, if that's all we need, we're literally saying we don't need the people. Because if we need the people, we have to understand the, well, we could say the categories through which people think. Uh, and the ways that the people think are different from the ways that academics and intellectuals think. And that's part of the problem. And, um, you know, again, Cornell, we want Cornell get closer to that tradition, that tradition of King that you say you are a part of understand it in its fullness, in its potentiality, in its creativity. But hey, Emily, do you think it would be a bad idea if maybe, you know, we kind of ended free school and got ready to- Jackie and I are joking. <laughs> and got ready to go to uh, uh, New York? Wait, just before we end though, can I read one last comment? Cause it's an exciting, it's a pretty, it's a pretty lovely comment. And I feel like it'll give us a lot of food for thought. Um, okay, so Leia Petra has one last comment and he says, I think they say, there's a way that Du Bois writes that makes me wonder whether history itself is prophecy. In Darkwater, after tracing his genealogy, he has this wonderful line, quote, so with some circumstance, having finally gotten myself born, I come to the days of my childhood, end quote. 
It's hard not to feel like the infinitely specific circumstances that brought us all individually here to this historical moment is a kind of destiny itself. And the role of prophecy in empowering us to define the future is us fulfilling slash redeeming that destiny. Instagram, like the, um, the physics or like some PhD, the doctorate, lecture. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. um, well, another thing I wanted to add just before we go is because I really appreciate this conversation that we had. Like I really thought, I really think we're doing something important. Um, and I just wanted to thank everybody for being a part of it and like contributing to it. Even if it was just like a short three hours or whatever, it was significant to me because um, <laughs> I guess three hours isn't supposed to be short, but it feels short nowadays. But I just feel like we're on a certain road and um, you're right, Sarah. We're on a certain trajectory. And like in figuring out what we're going to do for the year of Baldwin and concretizing our ideas or mm -hmm. making them like mm -hmm. putting words to mm -hmm. our feelings mm -hmm. um and what mm -hmm. we think about is mm -hmm. like really definitely important because we're specifying we're like slowly chipping away at specifying we're saying something um almost profound and specific which the people like of philly um and everything that we'll do like it, it'll be a lot it'll mean a lot it'll just mean a lot and i don't know i was just thinking that this conversation was i don't like to myself i also i thought something similar so you know where and then we can end um but yeah actually i really appreciated you reading out the last comment there because the first thing you made me think about which in some ways it's it's I feel like what I'm about to say is a different expression of what you said, Serafina, but it made me think about how this conversation we had today at free school, and in particular about the Black prophetic tradition, is also a like is um, making the case of why AI is so dumb or like <laughs> why AI is so limited unintelligent because this kind of conversation and that comment that um, I don't know your like actual name, but your comment is exactly um, what AI cannot do. Yeah. Like, isn't that interesting? It's yeah. like the black prophetic tradition, this conversation of the future destiny that is cannot be produced by something like AI. And like what you were saying, Serafina, it's also the year of Baldwin. And I feel like the point at which free schools talking is also like an unequivocal assertion of humanity um, in some ways. There's, that's how I feel. And yeah, I don't know. I agree with what you said about, I really appreciate this conversation. And it did feel like a short three hours. Yeah. <laughs> Only because sometimes like when you're by yourself and you're thinking everything by yourself, like it, that's the whole thing that we're kind of, or it made me think about, like you need some time to think by yourself to meditate over what you or to just work through what you were thinking about and that whole process is important and special because it'll help you kind of like be able to get ready for the next day or whatever and i just was thinking about that and and just in this conversation because 
because of the question or like maybe it's the question of potentiality maybe it's already what you said like you're human i know i'm sound stupid i'm sound stupid but let me sound stupid just for a second because because when you think about thought right like when you're just thinking you about think it about and you think about how the process okay now i do sound stupid thanks no, um <laughs> Uh, be, but Actually, you know that's, it happens out. Oh wow! I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Interrupt. Um, but like you know, there's um, there's just like the meditative aspect of it yeah. is um, is that kernel or a part of that kernel that you know kind of adds to a certain uncertainty. <laughs> or the fact that like well anything really could happen because you um you know are not dependent on the world as and you are dependent on the world you're dependent on yourself um and everything that you're made out of all the things that make you talented and whatever and all the things so the meditative portion but the thing that like we do in free school is like we like plug in <laughs> like to or like we think um, on the same page, or we're thinking out um, problems and things like that. And it has a similarity to when you're kind of by yourself, which is recommended to actually, you should have like that time by yourself for a certain period just for you to get yourself back together. And so, I don't know, it's, it's similar. Um, and that's also why the three hours doesn't feel that long because sometimes it just feels like that. Anyway, it's kind of dumb. Okay, with that and with no further commentary, um, we're going to leave a few minutes earlier than usual to get ready. Um, but I just want to thank everyone in the comments for, for participating. Um, the comments really add a lot to the discussion, and I really appreciate you joining us um, in the conversation. And um, we're, we'll, we're excited to see you all next week again. And thank you. And goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>